All right. There's our intro Thursday, January 4. How much fun are we going to have today with Danielle back in the studio? Danielle, how is Nashville, darling? Um, it's the most beautiful, magical place on earth. You know, that's what they say down there. Everyone's, hey, darling. Uh, they, they be calling me honey. They be like, honey, honey. I was like, well, okay. That's, a- you know, that's appropriate in a lot of areas, but per- perhaps not in Nashville. But we're glad you're back. Hey, Rieger and the crew. We've had fun so far this week. I think today's going to be the best show of the week. I will tell you this morning, I didn't really have a New Year's resolution. Not that I need one. Dave told me that he thinks New Year's resolutions are nonsense and why set yourself up to fail. So I decided to do one of those kind of silly, do a hundred day, hundred pushups a day for 30 days type things. You know, that's kind of viral on YouTube and, you know, body transformations. And I'm not in bad shape, but I could, could be better. Right. So this morning I get up about four because I get up about four every day and I made some coffee and I started reading and then I decided, you know, now is a good time to do these pushups. And I got to 12 when I started to breathe a little heavier and my, my one bad shoulder started to hurt. So I decided, well, I'll just take a break and maybe I'll just do 12 more. Now I've come up with a new plan. You know what it is? 12 push-ups a day for 30 days. Just 12? This is, this is exactly why I tell you that I don't do resolutions. For exactly, I know, I mean, for exactly the train wreck that happened with you this morning whoa. and the 12 push-ups. I don't I think it was call a, train it a train wreck. wreck. I mean, it's like a matchbox car wreck. Well, I mean, come on. You go from 100, you get through 12, and then, okay, we're, we're done. I mean, right, maybe, maybe you were setting the bar a little too high. But Listen, this, I mean, if this, I'm going to share is, these vulnerabilities, this is the reason why I appreciate Chris. not getting mocked. But I mean, fine. <laughs> uh, let's go through. Let's go through headlines of the day and tease a little bit. Yesterday, we touched on two things. The Epstein list, which is a big fat nothing burger. I mean, you almost could see that coming. This is like your example with the Geraldo Rivera vault. Yeah. All the same names you thought were going to be on the list are on the list. There's no new information. It's not like Bill Clinton was running around with, you know, 15 year old girls or something. And there's evidence of that. There was a couple of new ones like David Copperfield. I, what do I care? Do I care that David Copperfield can make birds fly out of his ears and also happen to visit Jeffrey Epstein's island? No. When's the last a, time David Copperfield's been in the news? I mean, it's been a while. That's probably the best thing that happened to him from a PR standpoint. Maybe <laughs> Vegas will call him up. <laughs> and, I mean, does I mean? Can you what 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 casino in Vegas is he at these days? I, mean, I don't know. You're the you're the Vegas guy, man. I don't go to Vegas. I mean, I'm trying to I'm trying to think. I haven't heard Copperfield in a long city. time. That's a bad idea. If it's called Sin City, I'll stay away. Like, where's the good city? I'll go there. This uh, uh this Nashville Claudine apparently thing. is the good city. Yeah, you yeah. Take me with you too. My wife is just in Nashville, Danielle, at the same time. You guys might have high-fived somewhere and called each other honey. Oh, we definitely didn't high-five. All right. Not sure how to take that. Listen, this Claudine Gay um, excusal slash, um, oh, what did she do? Basically wrote these, this long dissertation uh, as an exit letter, and then Harvard followed it up. We talked about this yesterday. The only new thing about that that's just hysterically funny is Al Sharpton coming to her defense. Now, Al Sharpton perhaps should do a Vegas show with David Copperfield. Because they've both been so irrelevant for so long. But the hilarity of this, you know, him coming out basically saying this is all because of race. No, it's not. Like, if your hero is Martin Luther King, and by the way, I'll be filling in for Paul on Martin Luther King Day, Dave. I think you already know that. If, if your hero is the one that said, you know, judge people by the content of their character, not the color of their skin. Clearly, this woman had a character problem. Yeah, I think. Let's, yeah, let's forget about the skin thing for just... Five minutes for once, because the other two women who were presidents of universities, MIT and, and, and Pitt or Pennsylvania, whatever the other one is, they're both white. Give me a break. 
we got to move past that kind of stuff. We, we will become a non-racial country as soon as we stop speaking it into existence, at least a portion of the time. Hey, Dave, what do you think about the NFL 100% sticking to their guns in blaming the Lions for the debacle at the end of the game? Uh, you knew they would. The NFL isn't, the NFL isn't going to go and call out their own guys. In fact, yeah. in fact, that whole crew is going to be on uh, national television for the uh, yeah. for the Pittsburgh Baltimore game. So it's so insulting. Look, we don't have to dwell on it. They could have won the game in other ways. The fact that they lost the game is on them. It's not on the referees. But the referees did make a they really did. ridiculous they did. spot. The N- but I think the NFL has it actually a valid point in saying that the that the Lions tried to you know go into so much of uh, you know tricking the the Cowboys. By you know, by sending out the multiple players, and you know, if the, maybe Danielle, maybe we have a sound for a nonsense alarm. Can maybe if the Lions didn't send out multiple years. players and just sent out uh, Decker by himself, and then they made the announcement, it would not have gotten screwed up. And then, then don't get me started on him going for Dave, two uh, Dave, from the Maloney. seven yard line either. Baloney okay. meter. The entire game is about deceiving. That's what the defense does every single play on every single time. It, well, it doesn't they, make a difference. Well, it's listen, not they, they, they deceive. They, they end up deceiving the ref. Now, maybe the ref should have been better. But, um, yeah, you know, unfortunately, the Lions in Dallas is a little bit of a house of horrors with these bad calls. Oh, isn't it, though? Isn't it, though? And doesn't the script just set itself up nicely for the Stafford return? All well, right, look. Pretend, well, it, it depends because it, it could be Green Bay coming back in. And uh, they, they, they might have ruined your Thanksgiving earlier this year. So let's see what happens. Okay. As promised, we're going to get back into the Electoral College talk conversation today versus the national popular vote. And I have some interesting takes on this. We're also going to bring in one expert, and I have some recording from the other, a guy that I just couldn't get on the air today because it didn't work out for him. Also, deeper in the, in the 1 o'clock hour, I'm going to talk to Ben uh, Schleckinger. And Ben is really interesting you guys ben dove super 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 deep into a book about the biden family the biden it's called the inside the the first family's 50-year rise to power and it has quite a bit to do with jimmy biden not just joe and not just hunter because hunter is the the most electric part of this i don't know relationship the triangle there in terms of newsworthy stuff. But when this kid went back and he wrote this entire manifesto and it came out in 2021, the media, largely the leftist popular media, paid no attention to it. Now, I'm not saying they buried the story entirely. All I'm saying is they called no attention to it, even though it was A, super relevant. B, a lot of the stuff about the laptop had been proved at that point to be real. It wasn't Russian interference. And so I'm going to get Ben on the horn. He agreed to come on. I talked to him earlier today and share some of the more surprising things that he learned. It'll be better than the Epstein list. How about that? Well, not much of a response there from the peanut gallery. So the big uh, gun control conversation yesterday, we're not going to lean back into that um, really at all. But we got quite a few phone calls yesterday about the 2024 gun laws. And that it's not just Michigan. It's the ones that are going in all over the place. And I took you guys, I took texts and even a couple of phone calls for, I don't know, three hours yesterday after the show. And then I re-listened to it. And I thought we did a darn good job of trying to facilitate the conversation, not take you no know, extreme side one or the other. But man, what a passionate issue. People just can't stay away from wanting to get their two cents in on that. And I hope to a large degree that we'll have some of that today when we get into the Electoral College versus the national popular vote. And Dave, what I have noticed is that a great many people 
do not understand how the voting process actually works. A, what it says in the Constitution, Article 2, Section 1, why the states are, have been charged with coming up for the electoral system on their own, and what we could do about changing it if we wanted to change it. And I think a lot of our, our thoughts on the thing are just wrong. They're historically wrong, and we don't know what would happen. Super interesting stuff. This clip that you uh, had me pull, I listened to that four-minute clip that we're going to play, uh, taught me a lot. Yeah, it's really interesting stuff. Look, Jessica Kriegel, Dr. Jessica Kriegel is joining us after the break to talk about this viral TikTok thing when it comes to jobs and Gen Zers. Okay, everybody hang tight. Back in just a few. All right, well, welcome back into the program. We have had an ongoing discussion uh, when I'm, I'm sitting in this chair about social media. Does it do more harm than good? I was reading a really fascinating little blurb yesterday, and we were lucky enough to get an expert on the line. Really, it has to do with Gen Z workers, you know, those kind of 18 to, to maybe late 20s workers that are getting a tremendous amount of their career advice and, and what's shaping them in terms of a corporate atmosphere going into the, to the workplace from things like TikTok. And it's really interesting, the statistics, some of the, some of the little buzzwords and hashtags that are being used. So we were able to get Dr. Jessica Kriegel on the phone with us. She is the chief scientist of workplace culture at Culture Partners. She's phenomenal online, does a lot of kind of leading by design things and appearances for folks that really want to turn their companies around and help with the culture. Jessica, thanks for joining the program. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So what's the, what's the Cliff Notes version of this particular story when it comes to TikTok and Gen Z employees? Well, there's a series of terms that have gone viral that people are picking up upon. So, for example, corporate flirting, being Delulu, these are terms that Gen Zers are latching onto, and they're learning how to navigate the corporate environment based on these TikToks and these labels that are getting created. And I think people in business are confused. They're wondering what these terms mean, what the impact is going to be on their culture and on the results that they're trying to achieve at work. Yeah. Okay. So what is corporate flirting? Let's start there. Yeah. Well, corporate flirting sounds like a walking HR violation in the making. It actually has nothing to do with romance or even flirting. There's a big disclaimer about please don't flirt at work. That's not what we mean. It's really just about being nice, genuine, having conversation at an authentic level with your colleagues so that you can create a connection. I mean, it's just being a good person, but now it's got this hashtag and a label. So it's somehow new, exciting, and has gone viral. It's, it's really just about being nice. Okay. That's interesting. And this is a large percentage of, of young men and women in this arena that are, are looking at things like TikTok, maybe not exclusively TikTok, but aren't we talking that the two thirds or more are kind of regularly looking at these things as uh, pieces of advice? Yeah. And I think one of the problems with social media is that when it, when it started, it was about sharing information about your life, photos with your friends and family in the community. And then at one point they added the like feature. And as soon as it was about getting likes, social media turned into a, a, a grab for your attention, creating sensational videos that you will like. And it became about branding and growing your awareness in the world, getting people to know who you are and validate who you are. And so it's become a lot less authentic than it originally was. And that's where you're seeing these things like we're sensationalizing being nice by giving it a label and calling it corporate flirting because someone is trying to get your attention. And the right. fragmentation of our attention is, I think, exactly what's going wrong in the world right now. So, Jessica, in watching these videos, as a person with a very distinct and de 
deep expertise and what is effective in the workplace in terms of moving your way up the ladder and what is not. As you watch some of these videos, do you find them effective or do you often roll your eyes and say, geez, that person has no business giving advice? I, you know, it's, I don't know what effective would look like, what they're trying to accomplish. What I see when I see these videos is people trying to make sense of the world in a world that doesn't make sense. And I'm also seeing a difference in perception versus reality. So if you look at, for example, the data on unemployment, the economy, job creation looks solid, things are fine, but people's perception of the economy is absolutely terrible because people are putting these loud TikToks about the price of McDonald's and things are looking really dire out there if you look at TikTok versus if you look at the data. And so the disconnect between perception and reality causes a lot of strife, conflict, and is a, a big headache for leaders of businesses who are just trying to keep the lights on. Yeah. And with and there's a, certainly a percentage of, in their, this report particularly, a, a sizable percentage of employees are saying that something that they have posted or something that may, they may have used and seen on TikTok has kind of gotten them in trouble in the workplace. What would be an example of that? Oh, there was a massive trend a few months back ago called quit talking, which is people quitting their jobs on video, posting it on TikTok and sensationalizing the moment. So they call in and have their boss on speakerphone as they quit live on the phone. And what they're doing is they're making a statement about what they feel are unfair business practices or how toxic the environment was. But the unfortunate circumstance is that then that video is online future employers are seeing the way that they've behaved and there's a major disconnect in what is quote unquote appropriate. Definitely different generations are seeing each other as being different, which is part of this bias and strife that's getting created. And so, I mean, that's a classic example. Older generation people are looking at that and saying, that's totally unacceptable. And younger generation people are saying, no, 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 that's totally normal. Right. That, that's true. And that it's such an alarming thing when you look at what's been available now for at least the last decade. And that's, I guess, the next question is, is there a convenience factor to things like TikTok that tend to be these very short, you know, what, 15, 30, 60 second spots versus something like on a YouTube where there's a tremendous amount of media from business coaches and, and career advisors that have really old school, solid advice and longer form conversations. Is TikTok just taking this much of that space up because it's quick and easy and you're just swiping through your phone while you're waiting in line or something anyway? Well, it, the, the amount of time that a TikTok video lasts versus a YouTube video lasts may be different, but the quality of the content, I mean, there's really terrible videos on YouTube just as much as there is on TikTok. What I'm seeing is a fragmentation of our consciousness where people are it's like they're moving from video to video to video, and they're unable to focus their attention on one thing. And it's not just TikTok that's grabbing our time. It's our Slack notifications, the text messages, phone calls, Zoom calls, we've emailed. We have so much coming at us all the time that very few of us in the workplace are actually doing the deep work of going into the material or the content that we're working with. It's very surface level attention spans right now. And, and that's something we're all struggling with. Even if you're not on TikTok, it's something that given the nature of digital communications now, everyone is challenged with. So, okay. So if I was 24 years old and I got my first job post-college at a, at a corporation somewhere and it was an entry-level position and I came to you for advice over a coffee, what would you tell me to use as, as terms of resources that I could find that would be, you know, attainable and kind of at my fingertips that would be, give me the best guidance? 
That's a great question. I mean, I'm a huge fan of books, whether you read them online or whether you read them on a piece of paper. What I will say is there's a very simple model that is a, a guide for how you can think and act in the workplace. That's what we define culture as, the way people think and act to get results. And it is that we all create experiences for each other, which shape each other's beliefs. And that's what gets people to take action and ultimately will achieve a result. So I get really intentional about the experiences I create for people, my colleagues, my boss, my peers in the workplace, mm -hmm. because I want them to hold a belief that I'm in this with them. I'm committed to the purpose of the organization, and that's going to direct people's action and therefore get a result. So stay focused on the experiences you create is the number one piece of advice I could give to anyone in the workplace. Okay. And so finally, that's, that's really smart. As I, you know, look in my experience in my late forties now, having built some companies, I've noticed that there's solidly two camps of people. There's often the giver types, and then there's very much the taker types. And the younger we've gone down this spectrum, I notice more of that kind of taker trend. Do you think that if you were to assign a score to it, things like this, things like the TikTok influence social media wise, is adding to the taker column or the giver column? Is it is teaching them how to corporately flirt, potentially giving to that environment culturally, or is it potentially creating some entitlement problems? It's interesting. The corporate flirting is all about being a giver, not a taker. That particular term is what that means about. I think there's a larger issue here, which is that we are living in more and more fear because of what we're being exposed to on social media and the sensationalizing of ideas. And so be, that fear is what leads to a taker mentality. You have to be in a certain amount of faith and abundance thinking in order to be a giver. And so the fear is really at the root of what's creating more of that taker mentality. I'm not sure if it's a generational issue or if it's just a, a what's what's happening in our modern day and age issue. Yeah, fascinating question. Jessica Kriegel, Dr. Jessica Kriegel joining us. Thanks again, Jessica. That's really fascinating stuff. I wish I had you around when I was coming up the ladder. But uh, better late than never. So thanks again for joining. We'll be back in just a few minutes with all your comments and talk. 800-859-0957. Well, hello there, everybody. Listen, I promised yesterday we would finish this discussion as we started it and the phone started to blow up a little bit. I have found myself, again, in my late 40s, defending the Electoral College so many times, especially to younger people in my life. I know the, the company line. I know the Republican line. I know the, uh, the Democrat uh, Party line for a lot of this. I have found myself slinking further and further into the rabbit hole of, of the popular vote, of a proportionate vote to some degree. So I decided, listen, let's go get the best there is on both sides of this equation, both which I think are very kind to their opposition. And the first place that leads us is to our friend John Fund. He's a former Wall Street Journal columnist. He's an expert in the advocacy for the Electoral College, and he's now with the National Journal. Thanks, John, for joining the program. How are you this morning? So much. Yeah, absolutely. John, look, I, I, I know I think all the classic arguments to this, but just give us from a bird's eye view in, in 2024 with the presidential election upon us being the only election that we do in, in, in any other way than, you know, a popular vote. Why do you still believe the electoral college system is not only the best, but the most appropriate for today's circumstance? Well, I think it's a stretch to say it's the best. Uh, what I will say is three things quickly, and we can go into detail. Sure. One, the founding fathers created the electoral college and to have an end run around it is frankly subverting our constitutional system 
which says the way you change the Constitution is you change it through amendments. Secondly, uh, the Electoral College does make it much more likely that candidates will campaign nationally and not just in major cities and run up the vote score in the popular vote. They were very concerned about having a system in which the rural and suburban areas were frankly ignored and people just focused on the cities. Thirdly, uh, the way the national popular vote is constructed, uh, it's entirely possible that only a minority of states will go together and bind in this compact, and that's not democratic. If the argument against the Electoral College is that it isn't democratic, having a minority of states form this compact, this national popular vote that says that you assign all of the state's electoral votes to the winning candidate nationwide, that's not democratic if a minority of states are doing it. Okay. And John, the classic arguments that we're going to get, and many of which I think are, are true, and you, you said those really well, if we stay away from the compact thing, because I think the the compact is the most complex portion of this. But in general, when we talk about the cities versus the rural areas, the, the, often what's referred to as flyover country, is, is that not really similar, though, to saying that why are we then only campaigning really in the battleground states? If 90-ish percent of all the funding for campaigns is being spent in the, let's call it six to eight, maybe six to ten battleground states, you know, post-primary isn't that the same thing? Or like, are we electing at this point in our our country the president of the United States or simply the president of the battleground states? A fair point. I would say this. You don't take one existing problem, which is a, probably a temporary one because we're rarely in this country's history so polarized as we are now, uh, and replace it with another problem, which is folk having campaigns focused only on the urban areas. I don't think that's a solution. Secondly, um, if you look at the, uh, by the way, as a side point, maybe the, maybe the 42 states where they don't focus all the campaign advertising on, maybe those are actually benefiting from it because the people <laughs> there don't have to be subjected to them. Yeah, for the anxiety, if nothing else, right? Right, but, but, but on a more serious note, um, it, is, um, it is probably a temporary phenomenon and probably based on the fact that Donald Trump and Joe Biden are such polarizing figures, that we really are down to six to eight states. I don't think that's necessarily something that lasts forever, uh, and nor do I think it's the most important problem the country faces. That's a very interesting point, John. That's one I don't have a rebuttal for, not that I'm trying to come up with rebuttals. But when I look at this, and I look at California, for example, in 2020, Trump won only 34.32% of the vote. But in proportionality, out of the 55 electorate votes there, that would have been 19 of those 55. Where something like Oklahoma, that's just as red as it can get, Biden only won 32%. It's so very similar, but that would only account for two of the seven electoral votes there. So if I'm a Republican-leaning voter in California, is my voice ever being heard, or am I just a nothing? to the system of California, all 55, which is more than, I mean, this is 19, which would be the proportionate amount of California votes going for Trump, is more than 45 states' electoral votes. Well, look, it is entirely constitutional for each individual state 
to have a different system to allocate electoral votes. Maine and Nebraska have done that. If you win a congressional district, as Trump did in 2016 and 2020 in Maine, you get to keep that electoral vote. Uh, California can constitutionally divide up its electoral votes by congressional district. It chooses not to do that. And Oklahoma chooses not to do that. No, and that's a really good point, too. Can I, can I interrupt you just to ask sure. a question? If the government of California is largely left-leaning, so, for example, by popular vote, Gavin Newsom, a Democrat, wins the Democratic Party, his Secretary of State, his Attorney General, so on and so forth, what is the likelihood that they would ever change that? They have the power, right? The Founding Fathers gave them the power as a constitutional republic to choose their own methodology of, of having the electors go. Why would they do that if they know it would only benefit the opposition? Uh, but the point is the Constitution is not about ensuring equal or fair outcomes for grievanced voters. The Constitution is about setting up a system. If you don't like the system, it establishes mechanisms by which you change it. It doesn't guarantee that you can change it. The point is you either have a Constitution where you follow the rules or you don't. And it's more dangerous to not follow the rules than it is to seek a temporary convenience or you know, a Band-Aid fix for something yeah. uh, that is, frankly, in most cases, a temporary problem. Yeah, that's, the, I think, the most interesting point, and I, I thank you for that, in the sense that this, this might be, in the grand scheme of things, a temporary problem. How many times has the Electoral College not aligned itself with the popular vote? Only four or five, right, including the last elections? Uh, not the last election. The Electoral College uh, gave a majority to Biden in the yeah. final count. And it gave a majority of the popular vote to Biden. But Hillary got the popular and Trump won the Electoral College, right? But that's yeah. only happened a few times historically. Right, exactly. And this is the last election, election, right? so that, that was you did align. Okay. So, you know, like in your estimation, as you pointed out earlier, it may not be the absolute best system, but it's the in your estimation, it's the best one we have still. Is that fair? Uh, no, it's the only constitutional system we have. I think that it does have advantages that are often discounted, but the bottom line is we have a constitution, and the reason we've had a constitution which has allowed this country to live in freedom and growing prosperity for its existence is because we haven't done what other tin-pot dictatorships or tin-pot countries around the world do, which is change the constitution whether they feel like it. Uh, we have a procedure okay. by which we change the constitution, and we need to follow it. John, thanks for joining the program today. We appreciate your expertise. Again, the phone number, 800-859-0957. We'll be back with calls and comments. I'll have a little bit of an opposition to this, uh, at least a recorded version, and then we can comment on that too. See in a few. So on the heels of that conversation with John Fund, who was an advocate for the Electoral College, the way it sits now, I want to bring to you a counterpoint to that because I think that is the most fun part of doing this to really affect conversation that's productive for all of us. Now, Dave, as I pointed out earlier, the, the deeper I've gone into this rabbit hole over the last few years, the more inclined I am to think that we're probably doing it the wrong way to some degree. At least 70-ish percent of Democrat-leaning voters think that we should have a popular vote. Of course, that has benefited them recently, so I can see why. And just shy of 50 percent of Republican voters think we should have a national a popular vote. But to go back to what John said, and before I roll that clip, I couldn't get our, our friend Saul Anuzas on the program today, but I'm going to pull a clip of his because I think it'll be very helpful to show the opposite side of that argument, the, the side for the popular vote from the conservative standpoint. 
But, you know, John, look, John is a very, very talented, very brilliant man. And I'm not saying he's wrong, but I wanted to, to throw this comment out there because I think it's really relevant. Article 2, Section 1 of our Constitution says simply, the state legislature shall determine how electors are chosen. There is no reference whatsoever to the Electoral College. And the 21-ish, I think maybe 22 proposals that were presented during the Constitutional Convention over a 31-day period, they, nobody could be entirely happy. In fact, the, the closest one they had to actually winning and only lost by one vote was the national popular vote. The Electoral College system was a compromise in essence because they just, hey, they had to end it somewhere and it was left up to states. Every state's got two senators. They have a proportionate amount of Congress people based on the population. There was only 16, or I'm sorry, 13 states back then officially. And there was no parties either. It, it's a fascinating phenomenon that we fast forward as much as we have. I think the, the popular conservative wisdom is, oh, if we have a popular vote, all that will ever happen is that the Democrat Party will win because the, the consolidation of their voting demographic is in the big cities. But is that necessarily true or is that just a hunch? Daniel, roll that clip. And this is this is Saul Anusis on Free the People, which is a very, very good podcast. And it was one of the better explanations I could find. And I'll try to get him on the program for tomorrow. I don't know if it'll happen or not, but let's go. Let's hear that. You go back and look at the history of a national popular vote, we've never really run a national popular vote, right? We've played by the rules, and the rules are you win enough states to win the Electoral College. So we don't campaign in some of the largest states in the country, be it California, New York, or Texas, um, because they're solidly Republican or solidly Democrat. Um, there are actually more Republicans living behind the blue wall of California than 27 other states combined. So you've got to kind of theoretically understand that there is we've never really had a popular vote, although the results of the election under the current rules have given a popular vote advantage to the Democrats. Now, having said that, on average, in a battleground state, you're getting 74 to 78 percent voter turnout, anywhere from 11 to 13 percent higher than a non-battleground state. Uh, two of the most Republican states in the country, uh, Utah and Oklahoma, are averaging voter turnouts in the 50 to 55 percent time. Um, I always use this example that in 2012 was the first time we spent a billion dollars on the presidential election. And uh, we spent about $760 million in the last three battleground states of Ohio, Virginia, and Florida. You literally had the best of the best of both sides campaigning in those three states. Um, you know, Barack Obama won all three of those states with a combined margin of victory of about 386,000 votes, and he got 70 electoral votes. Uh, Oklahoma was the second most Republican state in the country. Mitt Romney spent zero because he knew he was going to win. Barack Obama spent zero because he knew he was going to lose. And Mitt Romney came out of Oklahoma with a 450,000 vote margin, wiping out the margin of three of the biggest and most expensive states in the country, but he only got seven electoral votes. So there's kind of like an anecdotal example of how smaller red states tend to be redder than blue states are blue. Size becomes secondary to margin of victory, right? What kind of margin can you drive in these different states? Because by adding up the margins, you add up the popular vote and determine who the president is. The fact that California, as an example, has got 55 electoral votes, 38, 36, 38 million people, but their average margin of victory is only like 1.4 to 1.8 million votes. If you took a look at the seven box states just east of California, they make up seven or they make up 27 electoral votes, almost exactly half. And their margin of victory on behalf of the Republicans is about 1.6 to 1.7 million votes. So half the size of the states 
just because of the voter patterns, the way people vote, who gets out to vote, almost make up the difference there. So until we really have a national popular vote, it'd be pretty tough to determine. Um, I happen to sit on the NRA's National Board's Public Affairs Committee. We've identified over 52 Second Amendment supporters in this country. You know, on any given election year, we only turn out like 25 to 30 million voters because we're only turning them out in battleground states. If we had a national popular vote where every voter in every state became politically relevant every time, where it didn't matter whether you pulled a voter out of Ohio or Florida or Montana or Idaho, the NRA would be pulling voters out of every corner of the country. And Right to Life would do the same. Libertarians would do the same. Farm Bureau would do the same. You name the special interest group, all of a sudden the incentive to participate would be very different. And in the age of micro-targeting, states' lines have become secondary in many cases. Um, and if you created, the way to look at it, a national popular vote election would be kind of like a competitive U.S. Senate or gubernatorial election. You would basically create a single-member district, being the United States as a whole, and, and Republicans would campaign to maximize their votes in outstate America, minimize their losses in, in urban areas, and the Democrats would do the opposite. And, you know, we now have over 4,000 pieces of information on every voter in America. So when we actually campaign under micro-targeting, we don't, we don't go after communities or we don't go after, you know, counties or cities. We literally go after households, and we know who in that household voted how. Um, and so it's a very, very different way of campaigning in the last 15, 20 years, and it's only going to get more sophisticated. And so those lines are very arbitrary. And again, I think they benefit the Democrats just because there's so many more safe Democratic states than there are safe Republican states. All right. So that, that was uh, Saul Anuzis, who is an old school conservative. He was twice Michigan uh, GOP chair. He has spent a ton of time on the national stage. And this is a man who deeply, deeply wants a return to the Republican Party. But he is 100% convinced, and in the quantitative sense, that we're doing this wrong, that every single person's vote should count. And in any time you're in a state that is decidedly blue or decidedly red, and you happen to be in opposition to that, you essentially don't matter. And I think that's a very, very important conversation to have, because if the, if the primary listenership to WJR, certainly not the absolute, but the lion's share of people tend to lean right, they're going to think this isn't going to work for us. Our guy's not going to get elected. What do you say? 800-859-0957. Let's fire up the phones and talk it through after the break. Well, okay. So lively conversation. We're going to go to the phones as promised. And based on the fact that Dave from Rochester calls every time I'm on, Dave, you're either my biggest fan or, or my, my biggest critic. Which one is it you think? Biggest fan. Is Dave still there, buddy? Let's go out to Dave in Rochester. Dave, what's happening with you in the Electoral College comments? Yeah, I'm your biggest fan and your your brother who was on uh, Meet the Press two Sundays ago. Fantastic. I'm better looking uh, than him, though, Dave. Just keep that in mind. He's smarter, but I'm better looking. I don't know about that. <laughs> um, he's a good-looking guy. Uh, what's yeah, you, you brought up the, uh, the Constitution. Uh, okay. You brought up Article 1, and I wish people would read it. It's only 27 pages. The whole thing, including the the original 10 and the 17 subsequent amendments, the whole thing together, 27 pages. And you start with Article 1 that you brought. You moved out to Section 3, uh, talking about the proportionality. The whole spirit of democracy, even though we're a representative democracy, is nonetheless to take the numbers and do 
proportionality. In uh, uh, it was well, it was section uh, two where they talked about uh, the blacks only have three fifths of a vote. Okay, guess what? Six, 81 years and later, 1868, they corrected that. What they didn't correct, and we're now 155 years since that point, they did not correct the stupid electoral college, the Senate vote allocation, which gives two votes to every state regardless of population, such that the Dakotas get four votes for 1.6, combined for 1.67. California only gets two for for uh, 39.5 million votes, about 2% of representation. They never corrected uh, the Senate filibuster, which never was in the Constitution, nor the, nor the six Senate, uh, or excuse me, Supreme Court justices. But, it, but, it, but listening to the opposition, it's ridiculous. Like, we had a well, hold on, Dave, Dave. Listen, so that we can get to everyone, too. Think about it this way, and you're, you make great points. You're a good scholar on this stuff. The, the the spirit of the rule was to proportionately represent everybody in this country, even back when there was only 13 states and there was no parties. So isn't it unfair that Dave living in Rochester could vote one way because he's passionate about it? He's done all his research, but he's not represented in a winner-take-all state. And while you can look at recent results where that might not have benefited your candidate of choice, is that really the fairest way to do it? That's really the question at hand. Could we yeah, have a compromise? Yeah, yeah. We don't have to amend the Constitution to do this. That's nonsense. Every state can well, do it exactly like they want, should they want to change it. Yes, you, you nailed it earlier. It should not be among the six states. It should not be among urban dwellers. It should not be among uh, uh, suburban or rural dwellers. We had 154 million people vote. Every vote should have been counted for one over 154 millionth as far Amen. as the representation and the overall vote. Dave, thanks for the call, pal. We got to move on. I appreciate your input as always. Let's go out to Rob in Roseville. What's happening, Rob? Yeah, how you doing? I, I think the problem with the Electoral College isn't that it exists because it exists precisely because no democracy has ever survived more than about two generations because as soon as 51 percent of the people decide to start feeding off the other 49 percent, you have two wolves and a lamb discussing what to eat for dinner. Okay. If they would, old, old school analogy. I like that. In the 1820s, when they separated, when a lot of the states went from from dividing the electoral college votes by the percentage of the vote in their state to win or take all, that's when you started running into a problem. And I know right. it's left up to them, but I think the Constitution reads differently. It says it has to be apportioned by the number of votes that each person got. And then yeah, Rob, let me, you listen, would... as a as a smart guy, let me ask you a question. Do you think now if we fast forward, right? I mean, you're talking about the 1820s when we go ahead a, right. a couple hundred years. We're not talking about thousands or tens of thousands of dollars. We're talking about billions, billions right. of dollars spent on campaigning. And what I think that leads to is the perversion of modern politics. If, well, you're not going many... to change. You're... Yeah, go but ahead. You're not I'm going just... to you're not going to change that by going to a, um, uh, a straight popular vote. All you're going to end up is five states have enough, uh, five, or, five to seven states have enough population to run the rest of the states. 
that that may be the case, but the, and it's I think the short sighted version of this is does it happen in one elect, election cycle? No. But if you have a Republican, let's say that campaigns harder than ever in California because for the first time it's not a totally lost cause, they could pick up fifteen to twenty five electoral votes just by getting more people out to vote. Look, how many people just don't go in these deep red or deep uh, blue states? More people would come out if they thought it actually mattered. And I think that's, that's the true. biggest flaw in the system is to say, wait a second, how can we give 55 electoral votes from California? Let's say, I think it's 27 in New York. Those are both deeply blue states, but the margin of victory is not totally insurmountable. Even if it ended up being 60-40, that would change the whole landscape of things. But why do we have presidential candidates spending so much time in Florida, so much time in Ohio, so on and so forth, and they're making promises and they're sending all this money in there because they need so badly to get those votes because it's the only one with a margin close enough. I think I, you're I right. I understand the, the hope of, of popular vote, but I think it's going to fall. I believe it'll fall on its face in practice that the Electoral College still requires a mechanism under the republic that we are guaranteed in the Constitution. We are not guaranteed a democracy. We are not offered a democracy. We, well, uh, uh, I mean, we, we are, are made the mistake of allowing our, our senators to be elected. Well, Rob, look, it, th I think this is where I, arguments like this die in agreement, right? I always tease if I had my own show, I would just call it fair enough. Right. Smart guy and right. a kind guy. This, our system isn't perfect. It was damn smart when they started it. The Electoral College is a heck of an idea based on the fact that they didn't want huge conglomerations of densely populated areas to completely overwhelm the production areas of the country that were much more sparsely populated, but mattered just as much. I'm not taking anything away from that. But I think what we all have to come to terms with is the fact that we're in the, in the modern era now. We're talking about a multi-billion dollar industry of campaigning, and we're really only electing a president based on five or six states, not on 50. And everybody's vote should count. Sorry if that doesn't include your favorite guy of choice right this second. Dave Rieger, am I have I totally lost my mind on a Thursday? No, not at all. It's just a conversation. You know, sometimes uh, arguments, uh, it's like, you know, you agree to disagree type thing. I can't imagine. Really, if you think about it from the most simplistic standpoint, I'm not saying the Electoral College is junk. It should be thrown out. I'm not suggesting that it's amended. I don't, it doesn't even need to be amended technically. All I'm saying is that have we thought this through in its entirety, if we care about our kids and our grandkids, if you say on one hand, I think this country is going to hell in a handcart. It's so, it's so <laughs> divisive. It's so polar in its view of where things need to go. I would say, fine, you're not going to fix that in 10 years, but you could fix it in 30 if you gave everybody their piece, that means the libertarians, that means the rifle people, that means the agriculture people all get to vote for someone that matters to them. And it might take a, a couple decades to shake out really in a purified way. I could be wrong, but I honestly, I don't think I am. Just because you can look at a recent result that would have changed the, the result that you liked doesn't mean it's a bad idea. Listen, we're back with Ben Schreckinger. He got deep into the Biden family with his book. I'm going to ask him some tough questions. We'll see what he's willing to answer. He's a really good guy. We'll have fun with him. Stay tuned. 800 
Well, as we, as we roll into this next, just keep in mind, way back when, when the Hunter Biden stuff first started coming out, the laptop, every all the evidence that was being spoken about was said to be interference, Russian interference, all kinds of crazy schemes. And it turned out to be largely, if not entirely true. In fact, in many cases, worse than what everyone had expected. One of the people who didn't think that it was nonsense and had brought some of that to the forefront was my friend Ben Schreckinger, who actually wrote a book, The Bidens, Inside the First family's 50-year rise to power, but that book didn't get a ton of publicity, especially from the leftist media, the popular leftist media. Ben, thanks for joining the program. I, I got a handful of questions for you, and I want you to have as much fun as you can with this segment. I know there's certain things that you don't want to get into professionally, but how big of a blow was it to you that this book didn't really take off despite the appetite for knowing who these people really are? Having me, uh, I think it will be fun. You know, it was. Uh, I think in the end, it was a it was a journalistic success because of the number of people who have come to me uh, in the last couple of years and said, "Hey, you know, you really nailed it. It was ahead of the curve. Uh, maybe it was a little too ahead of the curve, uh, as you know, as you noted. It did not get a ton of attention from mainstream sources. Um, but I'm satisfied that it's a book that I think sheds a lot of light uh, on the dynamics of the first family and. Uh, a lot of newsworthy uh, parts of those dynamics. Yeah. And, you know, look, in D.C., I think everyone has some commonality of understanding that a lot of these families are very intertwined, even across the aisle with one another. And for years and years, they've made a lot of separate side deals. We see a lot of people go into public service making fairly meager salaries in a relative sense, and they leave or don't leave in some cases, but multi-multi-millionaires. So, was your experience in investigating the Biden family in general that they were they were largely really entrepreneurial, or was there a lot of scenarios here where you saw this is just more of the same from D.C. politics? Yeah, I think if you go all the way back to 50-plus years ago in the beginning of Joe Biden's career uh, as a public servant, you do see a queer pattern that repeats again and again, which is that members of his family – uh, end up uh, embarking on business endeavors that have some tie back to his political power, um, whether it's it's bank loans from a politically connected bank that his younger brother got to start a nightclub in the 70s uh, to Hunter Biden's lobbying work when his father was in the Senate uh, to, of course, what we know about uh, Hunter Biden's work with Burisma. Uh, so I think that pattern is pretty well established at this point. Yeah, and some of the more dynamic bullet points of the book often point to the uh, the opposition, the Republican people who have had ties to the Biden family, especially when, when Joe Biden was President Obama's uh, vice president and was largely known as like, you know, go get Joe. And he was kind of the good old boy that, that brought some of them together at times when they just couldn't get along. I mean, one of the things that I read that made my eyebrows go up is just the fact that there was a link there to between Hunter Biden himself and Tucker Carlson, who's been you know, a lightning rod on the right. There was a friendship there at one point. Yeah, that's right. They were neighbors in Washington uh, in a different era when when people on you know both sides of the aisle were a lot cozier. Their wives were good friends. And, and one of the things I was surprised to see uh, when I first started poking around in that laptop a few years ago uh, was a note from Tucker Carlson to Hunter Biden saying, hey, thanks for writing this Georgetown recommendation for one of my relatives. 
so obviously their relationship has taken a nosedive since then. Uh, I think sort of a sign of the times in terms of what's going on with our uh, you know national climate. Yeah, on the Hunter Biden note, and then we'll end the Hunter and we'll get into the Jimmy. On the Hunter Biden note, is it largely your perspective that prior to the laptop thing coming out, most people didn't know kind of the stuff he was into. I mean, clearly, if you look back at it now, you go, wow, that guy's a mess. He's got a lot of weird stuff going on. Was that largely unknown to the kind of D.C. elite crowd at that time? Yeah, I'd say it was. You know, the tenor of a lot of mainstream coverage uh, around the 2020 cycle was really scrutinizing Donald Trump, Rudy Giuliani, their efforts to to dig up dirt on the Bidens. And I think it left a lot of people with the impression that there there wasn't much to actually scrutinize. There wasn't much of substance uh, to look at when it came to Hunter Biden. And I think you saw that in the way people responded to this laptop material. A lot of people thought that it was fake. You know, some people, well-informed Washington insiders said it was obviously fake. Um, I had been doing a lot of reporting on Hunter Biden's dealings up to that point, uh, was not surprised uh, by what I saw it published by the New York Post. It was largely consistent with what I'd already reported. Uh, so a lot of it, I think, came down to a matter of perspective and, and, and how much people really knew uh, about Hunter Biden's background before October 2020. So what is the Jimmy element that seems to be running through almost all of these things, the nursing home scandal and some of the laptop material? And you look at, you know, Joe obviously was in a public position and did his best to shield himself from a lot of it. But Jimmy, the brother, who is younger, right, by quite a bit, had a huge role in a lot of this. Is he the, the culprit for a lot of the malfeasance financially that's been going on? Well, I think, you know, that's something that uh, Republicans are investigating there certainly been there's been at least one FBI investigation in, in recent years that has looked at Jim Biden uh, he's not been indicted or accused of of any crimes um, but he is somebody to keep an eye on uh, the Republican uh, house investigation is increasingly zooming in on some of his dealings especially with a, a hospital company called AmeriCorps um, and I think because his personal life is not as sensational as hunters he really has flown under the radar a bit uh, but he's involved in a lot of Hunter's dealings. They call each other best friends. Uh, he was sort of like a, a father figure to Hunter when Hunter's mother died and his, and his father was in the Senate. Uh, and I think we're going to be hearing more and more about Jimmy in the months to come. Yeah. So as this thing un continues to unfold, clearly the, the, the left side of the media is not crazy about this information. They have to admit to some degree that there is merit to it. Just like the right media doesn't want to really focus on Trump's bad behavior and his malfeasance. And some of that has been overblown to the degree that it went you know, to fairly high courts and has been shoved down. Do you think that to, to at least a large degree, evidence against the, the Biden family's historical behavior is become a moot point because it's being juxtaposed constantly against the bad behavior of Trump and the Trump corporation? Does it matter no, as I, much when there's bad behavior on both sides? I think that in, in some in some ways it does inoculate Joe Biden against a lot of this criticism, um, especially to the extent that it's a two-man race. It's not officially a two-man race yet, but it was in 2020. It looks like it will be again. Um, but at the same time, you know, it makes it harder for Joe Biden to draw a contrast with Donald Trump on a lot of these issues related to uh, integrity and that sort of thing. Uh, when he's got these Hunter Biden revelations uh, sort of constantly hanging over his campaign, 
so whether or not uh, whether or not this ends up leading to the road of impeachment, I don't think there's any way you can spin it as, as a positive for Joe Biden's campaign. Okay, Ben, Ben, as you're writing this thing, you know, having been around writers in my family, as you know, as you're writing <laughs> it and, and contemplating the text itself, what was the section of it or the story in it that made you the most nervous, but you felt morally obligated to make sure you told the story? You know, I think the some of the most uh, controversial live wire stuff just had to do with that laptop. Uh, it became uh, such a firestorm at the end of the campaign. What is this laptop? Is it real? Were the Russians behind it? What does it mean? Um, I found from, you know, trying to corroborate some of those emails that the materials was at least largely genuine uh, and was probably the first member of the mainstream media to report that. Uh, and, you know, that that made a, a big splash. Uh, everything we've seen since then uh, continues to corroborate the authenticity of, if not all of those files, uh, you know, the vast majority of them, perhaps all of them. Uh, but yeah, that was, uh, if you can recall, two and a half years ago, that was a very controversial subject. Sure. Ben, thanks for coming on with us. I know this is a, a touchy subject, especially in, in your neck of the woods. The Bidens inside the Hearst family's 50-year rise to power. The book is available everywhere. I just bought my copy on Amazon, Ben. I promise I'll read it. Great job. Thanks for coming on and being brave with it. We will talk to you soon. We'll be right back after the break with Marie Osborne. Stay tight. The quote that comes to mind, everybody, coming off that segment with uh, Ben Schreckinger with the Biden book is, oh, what a tangled web we weave when we first practice to deceive. I am just, if I, if you're anything like me, you are so sick and tired of all of our DC politicians, or at least quite a few of them having so many side deals that when they come out, you go, wow, that is not appropriate. I, it seems to me that the first time they, they throw their name in the hat for public office, everything they're doing and everything they have done, at least in a reasonable time frame, is absolutely fair game. I'm going to read that book. I think it's a very, very fascinating subject. But listen, on a, on a local note, every day, thousands of refugees arrive in the United States seeking asylum and citizenship. And now hundreds of them are arriving here in Michigan. And shelters and groups who offer support to these refugees, they're sounding the alarm. They, they don't have enough resources to help the people in need. Many say they can't even provide basic services like food and shelter. WGR senior news analyst, the bell of the ball, Marie Osborne. <laughs> Let's look at the problem. Hello, Chris. Is uh, going to get worse? Yeah. Hey, what's going on? It is getting worse. So the State Department of Refugee Repl uh, Reception says that last year, more than 2,500 refugees arrived here in Michigan. Most of them, more than 600, were placed in Kent County, 540 in Oakland County, 450 in Wayne County, and then the rest in Ingham and Kalamazoo County. Michigan has one of the highest rates of accepting refugees in the country. This is according to the Immigration Research Institute. Texas, California, New York, they've accepted more than Michigan in the last 10 years, but we're up there. This year, the state says they expect to receive 42% more refugees than they did last year. But the state doesn't know how many people are here as asylum seekers. And that is the crux of the matter. The state can't keep track of those numbers. A refugee is a person who's filed 
uh, fled their country, rather, because they're at risk of serious human rights violations. An asylum seeker is the same, but someone who has not been legally recognized as a refugee, and they're waiting to receive a decision on their asylum status. Now, they are released near the border where they entered after a background check, But then they have to rely on community agencies for food and shelter. And again, those numbers are not calculated. They are not tracked. Poppy Hernandez is the executive director of Global Michigan, and she tells the Detroit News there are no federal resources coming to Michigan to support most asylum seekers. The state's working with local partners to help them out, and they expect a dramatic increase this year. Uh, most of the asylum sta- uh, seekers are traveling to Michigan for uh, uh, in opportunity, she says. Housing inventory, as we know, is low around the state for everybody, and it's making it particularly hard for organizations who are trying to help place these refugees. Michigan anti- anticipates helping about 9,000 people eligible for refugee status benefits in 2024. And one last thing, Chris, Samaritas, a great agency here in the state, which also works with refugees, expects to double or maybe even triple intake numbers next year. Most of them coming from Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan, Venezuela, and in Flint, they're working with an influx of Cuban families. Wow. This is not to be confused with folks coming over the border from Mexico who are being bused by states like Texas to other states. These are people who are trying to escape tyrannical, in most cases, situations, correct? Uh, Right. But again, the there are there's a there's a bit of a division here. So the refugee is the person who's fled their country and. The asylum seeker is the same thing, but they have not been legally recognized as a refugee. And that's where a lot of those people fall because they're coming through at such large numbers, as we talked about so much. Um, And so they're just released after a background check and then they're told, well, you can depend on local agencies for food and shelter. So, Marie, when we say placed, that's an interesting word. And I put it in quotes here in my Placed means what? When we talk about Kent County, does that mean a bus pulls up to Kent County, dumps them out on the sidewalk and says, hey, the nearest shelter is two blocks to the left? Uh, There's, you know, they're they're, they Yes, they are brought to certain locations. And so when I say place, they're brought there. And um, that's how they these are the refugees. These are the ones who've been uh, given that status. And yes, they are brought to these counties that I've designated. Or that I've Has told the you. state mm-hmm. agreed to that at some point? I mean, there must be some coordination of saying, hey, we yes. can take a 1,200. Uh, there is some coordination. Uh, how much of it? I'd have to delve into that to really see the exact process. Uh, but I believe that each county is able to say, we can take so many X amount of these refugees uh, this month. I, I believe that that's how it works because then they then they have to place those people elsewhere in terms of for living uh, arrangements and so yeah. on. And they're struggling to find places for them oh. to live coming mm-hmm. up with the funding. So what in the world makes an, um, this is a classic line between Chris and Marie, you may not know this, but why, why is Kent, for example, the leading county in Michigan? What, what lends them more likely to say, we'll take this batch versus Wayne, for example, that's just far bigger. Right. Well, I will point out that in the numbers that we just mentioned here, 
uh, that we said 600 were sent to Kent County or placed in Kent County, 540 in Oakland County. That's a difference of 60 people. Yeah, not big of a difference. And 450 in Wayne County. Again, uh, not a huge difference between these numbers. And I wonder if there isn't just a division to say, okay, we're going to divide this many people and send them here. And that's Amongst how it goes. the biggest kind of urban yes. counties that have infrastructure. What are they supposed to do? I mean, if I show up here from Syria mm-hmm. and you, and you drop me off in essence at a, a shelter of some kind or some kind of, you know, government housing types in it, what, is there any job for me to do? Am I told to just hang tight while a, a, a case is being reviewed? I mean, do I just sit around all day? Well, they, uh, sometimes you do sit around. I just saw a story yesterday about a, re- a refugee in uh, New York who uh, was living in a hotel and he went downstairs and he started a coffee stand because oh. he wanted to be working. He wanted to be doing something. Well, so that good is a for pl- him. Yeah, that's a, that is a problem for a, a lot of people. They do try to place them in employment. And that's a whole other discussion. How yeah, Michigan a, needs employment uh, or needs people for a lot of jobs. Marie, thanks for that story. We will talk to you hopefully Thank again you. tomorrow. Back with a little bit of Chris Squared after a few minutes of break. Well, that's not exactly Chris Alberta kind of music. Maybe it's Chris Renwick music. I don't know. He's in his three-point stance waiting to just sprint into the 2 o'clock hour. But we had a lot of fun today. Uh, it was, again, a lively conversation. We had John Fundon talking about the Electoral College. I played some clips of Salonuzis. Jessica Kriegel came on telling us why 18 to 25-year-olds are looking to TikTok for um, advice on how to climb the corporate ladder and how to create a good culture where they're at. I think that's a little strange, but it was a fun story to cover. Anyway, and Marie, just fill us in on the refugees uh, from Syria and other places and some seeking asylum are coming into Michigan. Chris Renwick, how you doing, pal? Good, man. What's going on? You know, I we had a lot of fun. I, at least I had a lot of fun today. We had a, I think, well, we had a very nice show. It was interesting because we followed up on the conversation yesterday about the Electoral College. We did essentially three segments on that. One with John Fund, who former former Wall Street Journal writer, who is very much an advocate for the Electoral College, a Republican. Um, and then I played a clip from Salanusa, so I think is one of the most fabulously entertaining, thoughtful. Republicans. There is a guy that is local to us, a Michigan grad, a former Michigan GOP chair twice. And I have I've found myself leaning harder and harder into the idea that something's just not right. So how about you give me here's my challenge. I'll give you let me give you two minutes and try and change your mind. Can I do it on the popular vote? Sure. Yeah, yeah. let's roll. Here we go. Article two, section one of the Constitution written way, way back when. When they had 21 proposals over a 31-day period of time, the only only thing that even touched winning and lost by one vote was the popular vote. And because they couldn't decide on anything, the ultimate compromise was essentially to say, we'll let each state come to their own conclusion. State legislature shall determine how electors are chosen. There is no reference whatsoever to the electoral college. That was a, a bit of a amalgamation of different ideas that took shape because each state had two senators and as population grew, they were assigned more and more Congress people, so on and so forth. So my contention is that most of my conservative friends don't like this idea because with recency bias, they would point to the scenarios where that either cost them or won them. And if it won us our guy, why would we want to do away with it? But if California has 38 million people and Trump won in this last 
cycle around 34.32% of the election, that would have been proportionately 19 of the 55 electoral votes. Mm-hmm. For a state like Oklahoma, where Biden wins 32.29, almost an identical uh, you know, fraction ratio of the state, would have only gotten two of the seven. So my real contention is that we have created a system that spends tens of billions of dollars on marketing by politicians to essentially six or eight battleground states and don't bother going anywhere else because it just doesn't matter. But the deepest of red states are thicker and more walled than the bluest of blue states. If we just let everybody's vote count, even though in one initial cycle it might disappoint you, it would be a more accurate representation of what people in this country actually want. Why should my vote not matter in California or Michigan, for that matter, in the, in the last election? Well, look, it, it's a good point. My only thing is when you think in terms of the country, when you think in terms of the total population, yes, the top 10 states likely would would determine the winner of of any presidential race. But but the, it's it's those in smaller states. It's those in in less populated states that would be totally washed out. You would have zero voice. You would have zero say. But the it, guy in California has zero say now. Well, that's true. That's true. Why but, not just do it by congressional congressional district? But, but this is where this is where the states have to choose their own way. Isn't it in I want to say Nebraska where they Nebraska have like New. one county that's responsible for one of their electoral votes? So yes, it's based on population because it's Nebraska. Correct. But that's oh, that's an outlier. It's an outlier, scenario. but I think Virginia, uh, um, uh, New Hampshire, or Vermont also the same way. Like it's split up into different uh, sections of the electoral vote. So, but but that's the state's decision. It, it's just like with primaries. Why does Iowa have a caucus, but other states have a primary? Right. Like it. Like the states have to make their own decisions. And that's where I think that you disenfranchise a, a huge segment of your population if you take away the Electoral College. That's just my opinion. I think it's the exact opposite. That's really interesting because, honestly, the further I've gone down this rabbit hole in the last couple of years, and I used to argue the exact opposite. I remember a debate over Thanksgiving dinner with my oldest daughter where I was dying on the hill of the Electoral College. Mm-hmm. And I look back at some of the things I said that I thought theoretically made a tremendous amount of sense to a conservative-leaning person. And then I look back and go, actually, that's not correct. There, There is no mandate here for the Electoral College. We have a 50-state republic plus the districts, and they could do whatever they want to do. I mean, that's why the compact you know, idea exists that hasn't taken any kind of real shape yet. But as it continues, you look at that and go, actually, that would be a fairer way to do it, even in the short term. If you don't get your way, and we're not supposed to be making decisions about the, the future of this country according to what would suit my personal desires best mm-hmm. in the next four-year cycle, mm-hmm. but what would suit our kids, our grandkids, and our great-grandkids best. It's really a remarkable conversation because you're not calling anybody wrong. No. In fact, you're saying they had the wisdom back then to essentially create a system when there was 13 states and no two-party system that made sense at the time. How come we haven't? created a system of proportionality that part is really fascinating to hear the experts argue about so i'm just kind of going back here because I'm, I'm really interested to see uh when the last time a republican won a popular vote 
I'm back to 2004, where George W. Bush won the popular vote by three million votes. I I, I, I haven't done the research in depth, but I'd like to go back and look to see how often this plays out. Because you're right, a majority of these votes are going to come from a handful of states. The Californias, the New Yorks, the Floridas, the Texases. So... Are you more in? Are you more disenfranchised with a with a national vote, or are you getting a true sense of what the nation wants? I, yeah, it's a good question. I, well, I stick I to the electoral you don't college. Know until you do it. You really would never know until you actually Correct. try. Correct. When you look at the the twelve to fourteen percent less turnout in states that are winner take all that are deeply, you know, one or the other historically, like a California, like an Oklahoma, like an Indiana, like a New York, you know, two Republican, two Democratic states. You never know how much you disenfranchise the people that have realized for decades that their vote just doesn't matter. It's going to go blue. Why would I even go? You know, uh, Sal and Uses makes the point about the NRA associations and what they think the voter turnout would be mm-hmm. if it wasn't a winner take all. It's fascinating stuff. And I don't want to dwell on it. Like, like, we can't make an entire show of one thing. Yesterday, we ended up on gun violence most of the time and gun law. Today, we ended up largely on the electoral college. But I think this is one of those things that we all crave more information about because it's one of the very few things. It's a policy that it was created to be changed and to be looked at on an ongoing basis, depending on where we're at in our world. And our world now shouldn't focus on the six or eight states that matter most. During Bush's campaign, his his campaign director said, we only pull 18 states that are potential battleground states. We have no interest in going to the other ones. Yeah. Okay. Where's everybody else in this mix? Right. Sure. Do you not matter? Yeah. Crazy stuff. Yeah. What do you think about the uh, the asylum seekers and the refugees coming into Michigan? Well, look, it's a problem. I mean, every state is going to have to deal with this. You know, the, New York, Chicago have been overrun. And, and I think there's no doubt that a lot of these folks are going to end up in all different states in the country. There's, I, it, I just don't see how you avoid it. I'll listen to hear what you have to say about it. Have a terrific show. I'll catch up with you again tomorrow. Thanks, Michigan, for having me.